RC Top 3, a weekly podcast of the top three stories from Regnum Christi. Letter from the Regnum Christi General Directorate for the Feast of Christ the King, 2021. November 5th, 2021. To all Regnum Christi members, Dear friends in Jesus Christ, In this jubilee year of ECYD, Christ's call to be his friends, I have called you friends, acquires greater importance for each member of our spiritual family and expresses with greater insistence the burning desire to make him reign in our hearts, in the hearts of all people, and in the whole world. It is a desire that moves us to know and love Jesus Christ more every day and to foster an intimate relationship of friendship with him. Christ our King, thy kingdom come. This friendship becomes a call to the mission because the renewal of the world begins with allowing Christ to transform our own hearts in our daily lives. It is as if a man were to scatter seed on the land and would sleep and rise night and day, and the seed would sprout and grow. He knows not how. Mark chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. In the same way, one who has Jesus Christ as the King and Lord of their life bears fruit and gives life to those around them because they have encountered the one who fully gives meaning to their lives, and they can do nothing other than radiate and transmit this light that has illuminated their heart. The petition we pray in the prayer of ECYD, till it is you, Christ, who live and work and pray in me, acquires its fullest meaning on the solemnity of Christ the King, because it expresses the longing of the ECYD member's heart and that of every member of our spiritual family to make Christ's kingdom present. For this reason, we have decided to begin the Jubilee Year of ECYD on the Feast of Christ the King, so as to motivate us to foster and open our hearts to the kingdom which grows silently but constantly. Along this line, the Regnum Christi General Directorate's Area of Life and Mission has published the essay, The Pledge of Friendship with Christ and Among Each Other, ECYD, The Regnum Christi Charism Lived by Young People. It seeks to describe how Jesus Christ comes out to meet each young person reveals the love of his heart to him or her, gathers them together, and forms them as his friends and apostles, so that from that experience of friendship with him, they feel called to help others experience Christ as friend, and together transform the world according to the gospel. From the beginning of the first teams 50 years ago, many young people have met Christ in ECYD and have decided to let him reign in their hearts. They have opened themselves to the adventure of his friendship and his call to work so that his kingdom come. Together with all ECYD members, those of yesterday and today, we renew the petition that we find in the prayer of the Pledge of Friendship with Christ. We are yours, Lord, and yours we want to be. We offer our lives so that all people might know and love you, because we want you to reign in their hearts. We invite you to read, meditate, and reflect on this essay, both privately and in teams. We ask that the Holy Spirit enlighten our hearts so that this jubilee year that we now begin may be a time of gratitude to God for the gift of ECYD and a fresh breeze that helps us to renew His call to our spiritual family and apostolic body that is Regnum Christi. We seek this grace through the hands of Mary, Queen of the Apostles, so that she might show us the way that leads to forging a deep and intimate friendship with her Son. General Directive College of the Regnum Christi Federation Father John Connor, L.C., Nancy Norden, Felix Gomez Rueda, Francisco Gomez, Alvaro Abellan.
Lessons from the Workshop of St. Joseph by Father Daniel Brandenburg, L.C. Part 13. Returning Failure No Heroes Welcome While the stay of the Holy Family in Egypt remains enveloped in mystery, the return to Galilee and the town of Nazareth, likely after two to three years, is noted simply in Scripture. When Herod had died, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. He rose, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go back there. And because he had been warned in a dream, he departed for the region of Galilee. He went and dwelt in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Matthew chapter 2, verses 19-23 to 23. The early family life of Joseph and Mary has been a wild ride. Unexpected pregnancy, an inconvenient trip for the census, all sorts of strange visitors and predictions, asylum in a foreign nation. It seems like such insecure footing to start a family, yet their mutual love and God's guidance got them through it all. They did not waste energy complaining about getting the short end of the stick. Wisdom showed them that though life often seems unfair, because the enemy and the power brokers of the world seem to hold all the cards, death comes for King Herod, as it will for all. Death is the great equalizer. Wisdom is not beholden to knowledge and power of the world, but looks to what lies beyond. Joseph again is attentive to wisdom and to God's voice in a dream. Again, he acts decisively, returning to Nazareth. Note that the angel's instructions were incomplete. He was told simply to go back to the land of Israel. Initially, he probably planned to return to the city of David, seat of the kingly line and most natural place for the Messiah to take up residence. Yet Joseph recognizes the danger implicit in such a move, especially with the son of Herod most like him in his ruthlessness and debauchery, Archelaus, on the throne in that area. Joseph uses his native intelligence and specifies the generic instruction from the angel, and as protector and provider of the Holy Family, decides to return to Nazareth. This will be a safer place to raise Jesus. As well, both he and Mary have friends and contacts there, even if little family to speak of. He had a decent job there before, and he can get right back into it. They had left town for a few weeks, but now, after the space of several years, his home is a shambles, his business gone. He is no returning hero. There is no band to greet them, no cheering crowds, no family parties. After initial blank stares from the townspeople, recollection must have swept into some eyes, and then an initial query. Joseph, is that you? And from another quarter, Mary, we thought you'd left for good. And is this your little boy? Yet after the initial recognition, the inevitable gossip begins. Neighbors recall the odd circumstances of Mary's pregnancy, wonder about Joseph's agency in the affair, and tongues wag on street corners whenever they pass by. The elderly can't help decrying the irresponsibility of young people these days. Various versions circulate, and the gossips retell all the tales, savoring the fresh fodder for speculation. Joseph and Mary are secure enough in God's love that the talk doesn't faze them. 
Joseph doesn't base his decisions on the opinion or shaming of the crowds, but upon God's word that has guided him so faithfully until now. Who is your favorite false saint? By Holly Gustafson. If you love the saints, October is the month for you. It's filled with the feast days of some of the church's most endearing and compelling saints. There's a big saint for almost every day of the month. From the very first day, the feast of St. Therese of Lisieux falls on October 1st, to the very last, when we usher in the Feast of All Saints with All Hallows' Eve. October saints include other heavy hitters, such as St. Francis of Assisi, St. Damien of Malachi, St. Therese of Avila, Pope St. John Paul II, two apostles, and a gospel writer, Simon, Jude, and Luke, the guardian angels, and our Blessed Mother herself, Our Lady of the Rosary, falls on October 7th. Out of all these well-known and courageous saints and angels, it's hard to pick a favorite, but if pressed to choose, I'd have to go with St. Faustino Kowalska. Many years ago, a friend gave me a copy of Faustina's diary, Divine Mercy in My Soul, but for some reason, I could barely get past the first page. Years later, when I picked the book up for the second time, I could hardly put it down. Every morning, I nearly ran to my little prayer corner at the end of the living room couch, eager to hear what words of wisdom Faustina would have for me that day. Divine mercy in my soul became my manual, and Faustina became like a spiritual guide or, better yet, a big sister, accompanying me through the trials of my daily life. And although I finished reading her diary long ago, Faustina's words are a constant comfort to me in all the new challenges that I face. I often return to the notes I jotted and the articles I wrote to remind myself of the advice Faustina has given me through her diary over the years. Here are some of the biggest lessons she has taught me. Have gratitude for everything. It's easy to be thankful for all the lovely things in our lives, but St. Faustina took the virtue of gratitude one step further. She thanked God continually for the little daily crosses she experienced, particularly those she encountered in communal life. Her gratitude list, found in her diary Divine Mercy in My Soul, doesn't list the pleasant blessings I would tend to add to my own list, a sunny day, the kids getting along, an evening walk with my husband, that the vegetarian tacos I made for lunch on Friday were actually pretty tasty, but instead lists and outrageously gives thanks for all the little sufferings she endures. But this is the lesson that St. Faustina teaches us in her example of gratitude, that all is gift, worthy of thanks. Not just the sunny days, or the peaceful family times, or the sweet moments with our spouses, but the dark days, and the conflict, and misunderstandings too. All the joys and all the hardships of communal life are gifts, if we let them be, to draw us closer to God. St. Faustina knows this, and so in the giving thanks of her daily crosses, she doesn't wish any of them away. She only wishes to love God better through it all. Thank you for the cup of suffering from which I shall daily drink, she says at the end of her list. Do not diminish its bitterness, O Lord, but strengthen my lips that while drinking of this bitterness, they may know how to smile for love of you, my master. Even though I am an abyss of mercy, I am infinitely loved by God. St. Faustina never places herself on a pedestal, although, as Jesus' personal secretary of mercy, you'd think she'd have every right to. Instead, her diary is full of humble self-talk. She calls herself a poor creature, 
a tiny violet, crushed underfoot, an absolute abyss of mercy and baseness. She recognizes, consistently and continually, the enormous gulf that exists between the Creator and the creature, between her God and her poor, abysmal, miserable self. And yet, as she believes, love fills the gap. You are God, and I, I am your creature, says Faustina in one of her recorded conversations with Jesus. You, the immortal king, and I, a beggar and misery itself. But now all is clear to me. Your grace and your love, O Lord, will fill the gulf between you, Jesus, and me. That gulf between creator and creature has never felt wider these days. I am daily doing my best and simultaneously failing every single day. And yet, as Faustina reminds me over and over, love fills the gap. Love compensates for the chasms, she promises. Love will fill the gulf. Ask love. It advises best. St. Faustina suggests that the first way to perform an act of mercy is through the merciful word by forgiving and comforting. In the heat of an argument, it's sometimes hard to hold my tongue, and even when I do manage to refrain from saying something that hurts, it's even harder to know how to say something that heals. St. Faustina's advice to me when I don't know how to act or what to say is this. Always ask love. It advises best. In the middle of an argument, I try to stop and ask myself, is this love speaking? This quick check of the intention behind my words sometimes helps me rephrase what I'm about to say, or in some cases, keep silent. Don't be afraid of the cross. I've always had an aversion to suffering. I took the coziest seat. I avoided discomfort, like being cold or feeling awkward or experiencing someone else's tension, at all cost. And I was absurdly optimistic, refusing to believe that anything but the most positive, most comfortable, and easiest solution could possibly be true. I preferred the joyful mysteries to the sorrowful, the resurrected Christ to the crucified. I wanted the Easter without the Lent, and the salvation without the sorrow. In my morning meetings with Faustina, my comfort-loving, sorrow-eschewing heart was transformed. Gaze upon the silent heart of Jesus, stretched upon the cross, she told me, and I lifted my reluctant eyes to the crucified Christ. Snuggle closely to the most sacred heart of Jesus, she'd say, and in my imagination I'd hesitantly climb up on the cross and press my cheek against my Lord's. Let suffering become a delight, she said, and I started, little by little, to learn to love it, or at least to not hate it quite so much. Faustina's diary and her message of mercy, that I'd originally returned unread, ended up being the grace and transformation as originally promised. What makes a soul suddenly receptive to a message it has previously heard, ignored, snubbed, or even ridiculed? St. Faustina would say that it is God's relentless mercy that never tires and always yearns to close the gap between us.